Hello, and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I'm thrilled to welcome Doro Bush Cook. She is an entrepreneur, author, health and wellness advocate, and of course, the daughter and sister to two former U.S. presidents. She is also one of the most interesting, warm, and lovely people that you will ever have a chance to meet. She is a founding partner of BB&R Wellness. She is also the founder of a terrific podcast called Health Gig. We'll talk to Doro about how she's helping others live better, healthier lives, what she's learned about health, wellness, and aging from her amazing parents, and so much more. Doro, hello, and welcome to She Said, She Said. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you. Let's talk about where your initial interest in health and wellness came from. Well, it actually started on a walk in the woods. Um, I have a sister-in-law who's one of my partners, and she had taken some nutrition courses in New York, and she came, this was about, I don't know, maybe 16, 17 years ago, and we would walk on the weekends, and she would tell me all about the course she was taking. And then she told me there was this whole thing called mindfulness. And she said, I really think you would take to it. You ought to look into it. And it was from there that I began my study of mindfulness, not a formal study at all. I'm not an expert, but just a real interest. Because the more I learned about it and the more I implemented it into my life, I knew it was just the thing I needed being in a family that's in the public. It was an enormous help and a great tool to use. So I began my study there and then Trisha and I started to do workshops in our home and people would come and we would, she would teach nutrition and I would teach a very introduction to mindfulness and we would do some very short meditations and and then we were invited into schools. Then we went in and did some lunch and learns in corporations. And then from there, we decided to do a big conference. And now we partner with Georgetown University, and it's our signature event. But I really credit my sister-in-law and my friend for introducing me to this whole world of wellness. And it's it's been a great adventure. Yeah. How many years ago? It was before mindfulness was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Was this while your father was still in the White House or mm, after that? It was when George W. was in okay. the White House. It was a wonderful tool when George was debating or um, when I was reading the news and it was information that wasn't true or just the whole stress of having someone you love under scrutiny. It was a great tool. So you established what's called BB&R Wellness. That's yes. the company that you started with Trisha, your sister-in-law. Yes. We we just had our seventh conference at Georgetown uh, where we it's mind, body, spirit. And we talk about brain health. We talk about mindfulness. We talk about nutrition. We talk about um, muscle mass. This year we had a... Um, speaker talk about muscle mass and longevity and on and on and on. So how do you think about this notion of health and wellness as it relates to leadership? We're obviously talking uh, largely to women. This is a podcast that's focused Mm -hmm. on women's leadership and Mm -hmm. really showcasing 
different ways in which women lead and have an impact. How do you think about this notion of mindfulness and stress management and wellness generally as it relates to a leadership journey? Well, you know, mindfulness is a is a tool, I think. It's a tool that can be used in stressful situations and leaders all experience stress of some kind or another. And so um, mindfulness, which I like to define as paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally, and I like to add with kindness, is, is a tool we can use when we're lost in thought and we're, our thoughts tend usually to be negative. They tend to be unproductive. And so when you're, I would think when you're leading, at least I know when I'm, when I'm leading in my company, I know that I want to have the best use of my time. And when I'm lost in thought and thinking about things that are not necessarily true, as we often do, I know that coming back to this present moment, because it's the only moment we have, is hugely helpful. How's the best way for someone to adopt a mindfulness practice? If you're somebody who's sort of new to the topic, right? what's the best way or the easiest way to get into it and to begin to develop that practice? Practice is the right word because it's like learning an instrument. Um, and is it different from meditation? Or is well, it- so mindfulness, uh, meditation is the formal practice of mindfulness. So mindfulness we can do all day long. And mindfulness is awareness. It's when you're eating, you're really tasting the food, you're smelling the food, you're noticing the texture, you're appreciating the food, you're appreciating the person that prepared the food. It's a sense of awareness of exactly what you're doing right now. And meditation is taking time to sit quietly and to notice our thoughts. We can't control our thoughts. We're always going to be thinking but to find some sort of space between our thoughts, maybe to notice our thoughts non-judgmentally and to just sort of say, wow, that's an interesting thought. Take a deep breath and let it go and always coming back to your breath. And I would say just start to become aware and notice what's happening around you. That's the first step to mindfulness. And if you have time and you wanna take five minutes to sit quietly, there are huge benefits to that. But I would just say, if you're new to mindfulness, and uh, I would just say take baby steps and start there. Start where you are. There's no wrong or right way to do it, by the way. And what works for you might not work for me. We talk a lot about bioindividuality, and and we talk about that at our conference. We provide information, and we ask people to take with them what works for them and leave behind what doesn't and that's okay and the same thing with mindfulness just start and there's just huge benefits tell me a little more about the conference and some of the topics that you tackle in addition to mindfulness and meditation what else are you talking to people about this year for example we talked we had a a speaker named dr bob hariri and he talked about longevity and stem cells He's a guy who even talks about limb banks. And he talks. And what is that? Well, it, it's where people <laughs> who have lost a limb 
using stem cells can reattach limbs. That's something that's in our future. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. pretty amazing. We had a speaker talk about muscle mass, um, and he talked about really it's important to diet and exercise or to, to eat properly and to exercise, but what has the most benefits as we age is strength training and staying strong. We had Siri Lindley, who is a world champion triathlete, talk about overcoming fear. Mm. The health of the mind is equally as important as the health of the body. And, you know, it's important to work out, but it's also important to work in. One of the topics that particularly caught my attention was a discussion on the art of giving. How does that relate to health and wellness? Giving is something that makes us feel good and it produces serotonin in our brains when we give to others and so we have a segment where we give things to people that to our attendees and it gives us a lot of joy to give to others and so that's why we include that. Attendees are women and men. Mm-hmm. Is it does it skew one way or the other? Is it more women to men? Or it's more women? it's about sixty percent women, and we're quite proud that it's forty percent men. It's great. Our attendees are people in the military. We have an association with the George H. W. Bush CVN seventy seven because I'm a sponsor of that aircraft carrier, and so we send the conference out to them um, and often we get people from the from the ship to our conference and other military as well and we have teachers we have people that work for companies we have all kinds of people and it's just anyone who's interested in taking care of their own health and the health of those they love yeah you know studies have have now shown that women have a biological propensity toward rumination. Essentially, yes. our brains operate at a 30% faster pace than men's, which is not terribly surprising because if you're anything like me, you make a lot of lists and you're sort of running circles around so <laughs> the true. men in your lives. So I was curious as to whether you see that phenomenon or that sort of biological propensity playing out in your at your conferences well we do and um it's it's definitely something i suffer from and i so i think a lot about that because but i know that the very first step with rumination is just to be aware that you're doing it and that's where mindfulness comes in just to be aware um because our thoughts are not necessarily true, and we're wasting a lot of time ruminating on things that might just not be true at all. But I think the first um, step with rumination is to make a plan of action and to implement that plan if you can. So, for example, you could be thinking about someone gives you a side eye and then you're thinking, oh my gosh, that person is so mad at me. And I know why. It's because I forgot to call them and follow up with something. And anyway, you make these stories up in your head. But if you can just face it head on and just call that person and, and then it might become, you know, evident that, well, this is not true at all. And um, the other thing you might do is call a friend and talk to them about it. Um, Or the other thing you might do is 
go for a walk and just breathe in the fresh air. Or you might need to see a therapist. Um, rumination is often linked to depression. Mm-hmm. And it's so, sort of like if you let it go and go. Yeah, right? let it go and go. But there are things you can do. But, it, it, you know, it's not easy. And it's it's our work to, to figure this out. Let's talk about, shift gears a bit, and talk about the podcast. You launched mm. Health Gig yeah. last year. Uh-huh. It's been up about a year. Yes. It's fantastic. Thank I you. I really, really love it. Um, you've had some amazing guests on, mm-hmm. but by far, I might be a little biased, but by far, my absolute favorite was the three-part series that you did with your brother, who was I know. President 43. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um Let's talk about how HealthGig complements your business strategy. Why a podcast and not a YouTube channel? Well, our conference is very intimate, and we're on purpose because we want people to connect with each other. It's a day-long conference, and it's a series of TED Talks. So we love that people are close together and that it's a small group and they can relatively small Mm -hmm. and they can connect with each other the podcast is an extension of the conference Mm -hmm. because you know we want more people to hear the conversations and the the valuable information that that we're able to provide so the health so the podcast reaches way more people what have you learned about doing a podcast was this something that you were new to it totally new too. Um, I've just learned how much fun it is to connect with people and to um, learn what makes them healthy and happy. And everyone's different, mm-hmm. and so that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, you had a you had a great conversation with David Rubenstein. Yes, as well, a few weeks ago, or maybe this was the last one. I just listened to it recently. Yes, um, but but it's interesting because you're talking to. Not just health and wellness gurus, and I don't mean guru in a derogatory fashion at all, but people who are experts in health and wellness, but you're also talking to other leaders from all different sectors about how they manage health and wellness and how they think about it. It's so true. I love learning what makes people healthy and happy. We talked to Reba McIntyre. She's adorable. One of my favorites, beside my brothers, which we'll talk about in a minute, was with Kirk Cousins, who is the former quarterback here at the Redskins. We really miss him, by the way. I loved what he talked about his morning routines. His morning routine is that um, he's very spiritual, religious guy, a very nice man. Um, And he, every morning, he, instead of praying his prayers silently or aloud, he writes his prayers. He journals his prayers. And then after a year's time, he'll go back and read his prayers. And he'll know what was on his heart for you know, during all those months during throughout the year. And he says that he finds it just so rewarding and interesting to go back and see what was on his mind and heart. Yeah, that's a beautiful idea. I never thought about journaling my prayers. Yeah. That's so interesting. So let's talk about the conversation that you had with your brother. Yeah. What's great about the conversation is that it feels very personal. Mm -hmm. The love that you two have for each other and for your family really comes through in the conversation. Mm. He also talks about health and wellness, which mm-hmm. is lovely. You talk about your amazing parents. I know. It was really, it's really great. Did you, did he tell you anything that surprised you in these conversations? 
Not really, because I know him. I know him well. George and I are 13 years apart, but we're very close. So he didn't really tell me anything that surprised me, but he continues to impress me. I admire him and love him so much, and I, I admire the way he lives his life. And on the podcast, we talked about the health and wellness influence our parents had on us. And in the wellness world, we talk about primary foods and secondary foods. And the primary foods are the things like your faith and your relationships and your physical activity and not the things you put in your mouth, but the things that nourish you, like community. And those are the things that my parents were very high on. You know, my dad always said faith, family, and friends were the things that were important to him. And those are our primary foods. Those are the things. And so we grew up with all of those important things in our lives. And um, and then secondary foods are the foods you eat. And so, you know, we ate well, of course. We were very fortunate growing up. But we also had dessert every lunch <laughs> and every dinner. And both my brother and I are people that love sugar. And it's been one of the things we've had to battle our whole life. I remember George told me he looks great. He's, he works out and he's trim and he's careful about what he eats. But he, he told me, he said, you know, I'm a fat person on the inside, <laughs> which means he's always will want to be eating desserts. And, and I'm the same way. We learned a lot from my parents. Yeah. Were your parents really into physical fitness as uh, well? 100%. Yeah. My dad was a great athlete early on. Um, he was he played baseball in college and soccer and, and all kinds of sports. He was a competitive tennis player and golfer and runner and always working out in the gym. And my mom was the same way. And my parents didn't like us to be idle. They didn't couldn't stand for us to be like laying around and there was a lot of competition involved and it was fun and I have four brothers and they were always interested in beating each other and you know I'm just trying to get in there and keep up and um so yeah we grew up with a lot of exercise and competition did you find yourself more inclined to gravitate toward the sports that your brother played versus the things that you might have pursued naturally? Or I think the sports my family play, played. Yeah. We all played tennis, tennis, and we all play golf, and and then now we're we're having a pickleball craze. <laughs> we this summer we we started pickleball, and pickleball is the great equalizer because everybody can play it. You can play it with your injuries. Uh, my, some of my brothers who have hip, had hip replacements and can't play tennis anymore, they're out there competitively playing pickleball. So it was fun. Your parents set such an incredible example for not only you guys as their kids, mm-hmm. but for the nation. The service mentality has carried into each of you and how mm-hmm. you've lived your lives. You've, you've had different paths, but you are living in service to other people. 
My parents were always serving their community, their neighbors, their church, their friends, their country. And um, my parents, my dad especially, my mom was sort of our disciplinarian. And so we heard from her when things were not going um, very well. But my dad never spoke to us and said, you should be doing that or you should be doing this. He always really did lead by example. And my dad always loves to say any successful life must include service to others. And we heard him say that and we all bought into it. Mm -hmm. Did you find yourself also, you use those same lessons and that same the same ideas as it relates to raising your own children as well? I think so. And I think they see when we are working hard to make a difference in the world, they notice that and and they do the same. I'm very proud that my children are interested in helping others. And they also went to Jesuit schools. You know, their philosophy is serving others. So they were reinforced um, by their schooling, which was great. And so, yeah, they're doing good things. Yeah, yeah. You talked to your brother about his newfound skill and passion for painting Mm -hmm. on your podcast. Mm Did that surprise you about him? We were shocked when, you know, my I was actually with my mom in Houston sitting with her and we got a phone call and George said, "Well, I've taken up painting." And I hate to tell you, mom started laughing, you know, <laughs> and because George went from ground zero, from nothing, not even an interest in art history. I said, well, what have you painted? And he said, well, I've painted some melons. I said, well, can you please send them? We want to see them. And mom took a look and mom, who was never, you know, she was always very blunt. And she said, well, that's, you know, to me, she said, oh my God, that's terrible. He's got to no, you know, that kind of thing. But anyway, sure enough, George just jumped in with two feet, got, he's, I think he's had five different teachers. He took a art history course online at the MoMA and, and began to study art. And he's just become this really talented painter. And it's a passion for him. He says he'll go, he goes into his art studio and for four hours and it feels like five minutes. And so now I'm his biggest supporter, and he sends me paintings. He sends me pictures of all his paintings, and and I'm a proud owner of about six of his paintings, which hang in my home. (laughs) And he's just really good. Yeah, I was so amazed. I had a chance to to visit the library and the foundation, the portraits before the book was published of the the veterans. It was amazing. It really was. But, I mean, he would tell you that anybody can learn. If he can learn, anybody can learn. And it's such a great example to people that they can take, you know, and it's so good for your health Mm -hmm. to take up something new. And to if you really study it and put your heart into it, you can be good at it. Do you think it's a form of mindfulness for him? Definitely. A hundred percent. Because... He gets lost in it. He just it's a hundred percent focus. He feels better. He's a he's a more fulfilled person. He's a a better person for doing it. Talking about your amazing parents, um, mm-hmm. a few years ago you wrote a book 
about your dad and your family. Mm-hmm. And I've always been curious. The book is amazing. But I've Thank been you. curious as to how daunting it was to write a book about your parent, and he's there to read it. I would think it would be a little daunting. Well, it actually was one of the greatest joys in my life because I never thought I'd have the opportunity to work with my dad. And so I would begin to research something about his life, and I would think, wow, I wonder what happened you know, in the 84 election. You know, when Dad was running against Geraldine Ferraro, and I tried to remember some part of it or do some research on him, and then I'd say, "You know what? I'm just going to call Dad," and and I'd call Dad, and he'd go, "Oh no, this is what happened." And so it was wonderful to have that opportunity to work together. Now, when he first asked me to do it, there were these files that his former administrative assistant Patty Presock kept. They were files that no one had seen. And she had suggested to Dad, well, I've got these files, and I was always wondering if Dora might want the files so she could write a book about you. And Dad called me, and he said, you know, I've got this crazy idea. You don't have to do it. There are these files. No one's seen them. It might be a fun project for you. And I hung up the phone, and I did feel like this was overwhelming. How could I write a book about a president? But then I realized I had the the Bush Library to help me. I had my sister-in-law, who I work with now, was my research assistant. And so I had a lot of help. And so then I felt more comfortable with it. And then it became the greatest privilege of my life to, to write about this amazing man who is my greatest teacher, someone I adore. It was just a wonderful experience. How has your work on mindfulness and health and wellness changed you? How has it impacted your life? It's changed my life in an enormous way. I mean, mindfulness is everything to me because I used to walk around completely lost in thought, believing the crazy thoughts in my head. As Dan Harris, who wrote a book called 10% Happier, wrote, and I agree with him, that I was walking around listening, and this is a bad word, so I don't know if you have to bleep it out, listening to the asshole in my head. (laughs) Um, And without mindfulness... When you say the asshole in your head, you mean the person who says, you saying mean things to yourself? Yeah, the thoughts, the crazy thoughts, um, which aren't necessarily true. Before I knew anything about mindfulness... I didn't have the awareness to step back, take a look at my thoughts, not be judgmental, and to just take that opportunity to let them go and realize there was doing me no good at all. I credit mindfulness with helping me live my life as as I'm living it rather than being lost in some other world. Do you think that notion of self-talk, the negative self-talk that mm-hmm. you're talking about, mm-hmm. the, the bad person mm-hmm. that lives in your head, do you think that tends to be harder for women or something that women tend to contend with more than men? I, I do think women are hard on themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's 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 just can be debilitating to mm-hmm. some people. And I know I can only speak for myself. I really suffered from very mild depression but there were times when I just didn't feel like getting out of bed and it all had to do with the thoughts in my head. Mm -hmm. 
sort of getting those out, channeling them, making yeah. them more constructive. Right. And and being kinder to myself okay. and being aware, just noticing. And then shifting and beginning to notice and spend more time notice and lengthening my time noticing the miracles and the good things that happen. Like up in Maine, I have a birdhouse and every year a tree swallow makes a nest and taking the time to notice the tree swallow who is really an acrobat in the air <laughs> doing these beautiful turns and and then watching them build their you know rebuild their nest every year and then watching the fledglings come out of the birdhouse and watching the parents teach the fledglings to fly and all of that taking time to notice those things and lengthening that time rather than have it be a passing thing and then go back to my thoughts. Lean into the more positive things. You learned about mindfulness a little later in life. Right. How how early do you think you can start talking to kids about this notion of mindfulness and just being more aware and focusing more on the positive? I mean, I think the earlier the better because imagine... Um, learning mindfulness as a child and having that tool to use throughout your life. Um, the mindfulness can help children with stress reduction. It can help children be more compassionate. It can help them with concentration and focus in school. And, you know, we talk so much about bullying and all of those things that come up. And I think there would be far less of those things if mindfulness were part of the curriculum. There are curriculum for mindfulness starting in kindergarten. It it has a calming effect um, that if we teach our children early, I think it can have enormous benefits. Doro, what can we learn about aging from your amazing parents? Um, My parents are so well cared for. We're so fortunate that um, my dad is being cared for by former medics and the, you know, um, and, and people that respect him and my dad respects back. And so we were very lucky with both of my parents. My mom um, let us know that it, it was her time to go. And you know, I, I think of that a lot and I think how brave she was because she never would have left my dad. They were married for 73 years and adored each other. I mean, adored each other. And my mom never would have left my dad if if her suffering, you know, if she weren't, wasn't suffering so much. And But she gave us the gift of saying, you know what, I can't do it. I'm ready to go. And, and she had a deep faith and and my dad has taught us the greatest lessons about aging. My dad lives in a chair. He hasn't been able to walk for years. And he's taught us to grow old with grace. He never complains. He only has kind words for others. We're just so blessed. So I haven't had the experience that others have had. I've been very spoiled in that way just have the opportunity to just love dad when we're with him. And um, so we're very lucky. Where's your most peaceful place? My most peaceful place is in Maine, by the sea, uh, walking on the beach, probably with my dogs. 
How about, and this is taking a page out of your health gig playbook, you ask, I think, each of your guests for three books mm. that they would recommend to others. Give me your favorite. You can pick one. My favorite book is The Book of Joy, which is the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, A Conversation Between the Two. I've read it, well, I've, li- I've read it once. I've listened to it on audiobooks, and I'm ready to read it again. Well, and since you mentioned the Dalai Lama, you actually had a chance to meet him. Mm-hmm. What was that like? What did you talk about? Well, it was a dream come true to meet the Dalai Lama. Um, we, well, we talked a little about my brother because he and my brother George W. Bush are very sweet friends together, and um, but he just he just exudes love that man and he's also filled with joy and he giggles and laughs and and so we just chit-chatted about life and and simple sweet things and um and I love the Dalai Lama and I love what he says that kindness is my religion because I believe that too you are the chair of the board of the Barbara Bush Foundation uh, on Literacy. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about working with an organization that's so important to your mom and is so important to her legacy. And many things important to her legacy, but this in particular. Well, this was huge on her mind. And so there are 36 million Americans who are functionally illiterate. And so our task is large, and that is to uh, make sure that every single person in America can read and write so that they they can get into the mainstream of life and get a job and read um, and do all the things you need to do when you can read. And it's a privilege to continue her legacy. We have a new CEO named British Robinson who we're very excited about. And we're doing amazing, innovative things like an X Prize, because most people have access to a phone no matter where, what their income level is. And so we have a contest going on to to make an app for a phone that teaches people to read. So it's a, it's a wonderful thing, and um, so we're trying to find new, innovative ways to move the needle on literacy. Dora, one final question. What is your best piece of advice or life hack? It can be a mantra that you tell yourself. What is yours? I hope this doesn't sound trite, but I would just say my advice is to love one another and to be kind. Mark Twain said, kindness is the language the deaf can hear and the blind can see. My dad, who is my greatest teacher, taught me that. And I think my mindfulness practice reinforces it. And so I would just say love one another. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. Dora, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a joy. Thank you. Thank you for me too. Really appreciate it. To learn more about Doro, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There you'll find show notes as well as a few photographs from today's visit. You can also follow us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. As always, thanks so much for listening.